Welcome to Chewing the Fat, the Yale Sustainable Food Program's podcast that looks at people making change in the complex world of food and agriculture. I'm your host, Erwin Lee. For February, we've partnered with the Afro-American Cultural Center at Yale for a special Chewing the Fat event series entitled Cooking Across the Black Diaspora. In addition to Black History Month, the collaboration commemorates this year's 50th anniversary for both the Afro-American Cultural Center and Yale's Department of African American Studies. Building upon the conversations with past Chewing the Fat guests like Michael Twitty and Leah Penniman, the series celebrates the food traditions and innovations of Afro and Black identifying peoples. In hosting Naisha Arrington, Paula Velez, Kiki Luya, and Bryant Terry, this series creates space for four chefs to share their stories of food and identity, heritage and resilience, healing and justice. Cooking Across the Black Diaspora continues with Paulo Velez, executive pastry chef at the Afro-Caribbean restaurant Kith and Kin, located in Washington, D.C. Paula received her culinary degree from Le Cordon Bleu, and last year she was selected as a finalist for Pastry Chef of the Year by the Restaurant Association Metropolitan Washington. She shares with us her dream to create more than beautiful desserts. In researching and creating flavors of the diaspora, she hopes to honor the histories of Black and Afro-identifying people everywhere. Here's Paula chatting with podcast manager Alexa Stinger. Just to start, could you tell us a little bit about how growing up between the Bronx and the Dominican Republic has really shaped you and your cooking and the sort of things that you like to cook and to taste for yourself? It's a bit of like a duality, right? Like mm-hmm. you live two lives because living in New York in the Bronx, you are exposed to a lot of fast moving, just like the rat race of New York City. Mm-hmm. And living in the Dominican Republic, everything slows down, you know. So I was able to like be fast and slow at the same time. So I had time to think and experience so much of the Dominican Republic, but also I had time to really accelerate my thoughts in the Bronx and learn all this culture, like, uh, you know, you hear about the Bronx and you're like, oh, the Bronx is scary, right? It's not, right? Where I grew up, it was very quiet and residential. So I know it to be almost like a mold that shaped me, two worlds, shaping me into one person. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty cool. And does that sort of like the speed of New York City, do you see that like translating into the food culture and the way that people like now eat their food? I think so. I think that we need, as millennials especially, everything is like super instant, right? So Mm -hmm. food is like, what's the next trend? What's the next big thing? Mm -hmm. So when you grow up in an environment like that where you're expected to be running, you learn how to get ahead of the curve, you know, and you start to make trends. You start to think outside of the box, and you don't follow anymore. Mm -hmm. Because in New York City, if you follow, you're not going to make a name for yourself. Mm -hmm. So I take that, and I came to D.C., and I'm just always creating something new. If I see that people are like, oh, this is the next big thing, I'm like moving on to the next thing because I want people to experience something different, something fresh, hip. A few Instagram pictures, yes, that would be nice, (laughs) but also... I want you to remember flavors and be transported via a memory that I might have had when I was little into food. So it like really helped me 
you know, kind of learn how to uh, streamline. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that these kind of new ideas came quite easily to you or was that something that did you feel pressure to come up with new ideas so as to like get ahead of the curve? Oh, no, they came in like instantly. They were just, you know, it might have been a dream or I might be having drinks with a friend and I'm like, oh, imagine if we did this shortbread with a mojito style, Mm -hmm. you know, candy coating, you know. I try to take life experience and I'll kind of like mold it into a dessert so that you almost feel instantly connected to me via my desserts, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, I'm trying to think when you, when you're getting these ideas, is it normally a person or like an experience or like a, a taste? What is really the thing that kind of sparks these ideas and has that changed over time? A lot of when I first started just creating desserts in my kitchen, like home kitchen, mm-hmm. it was just like me trying to recreate flavors from my childhood. And then I took it deeper and I would reflect on memories that I would have. Like um, right now we have a New York style cheesecake semifrito on the menu. Yes, you heard that correctly. It's a New York style cheesecake that we bake in house and then we turn it into a semi-frozen dessert. That was because I was on the fire escape with my parents every summer and we lived by a cheesecake factory. And I was nine at the time, I remember. And I said, hey, dad. You always buy cheesecake in the summer. That's awesome. But the cheesecake is always warm. Why can't we have it frozen? Like ice cream, you know, because I always wanted ice cream. And that memory made me laugh. And I was like, how cool would it be that I honor my father uh, with this dessert? Because he used to do something in the middle of the summer to kind of keep us like together. And because he used to have to work a lot and overnight shifts and stuff like that. And You take that memory and you process it down to like the fundamentals and then you make it into a dish and a plate and then you can explain it to a guest and be like, I was nine and I wanted frozen cheesecake. So now you get to experience my nine-year-old's wildest dreams, you know, Mm -hmm. so it's pretty cool. Yeah. And when you're creating these sort of like very cool creative desserts, do you ever feel that sometimes especially like getting to use new equipment and really create something that probably couldn't be created in a home kitchen that you ever feel maybe you're edging into style over substance. And, you know, there's that debate, especially with the influence of social media and like Instagramming and making things look beautiful, but then like maybe not tasting as good or not being as easy to recreate for the average person. How do you feel about that? Every dessert I make, a person at home can make. Okay. It's super easy to make. It's not wild techniques. It's just perhaps wild combinations. Yeah. (laughs) And finding the right sourcing, right? Like learning how to source ingredients at the right time so that your dish tastes the best at Mm -hmm. that moment. For me, making something into an edible work of art means nothing if you won't remember me because of how it tastes. Mm -hmm. Like, I want you to remember me because you're craving that dessert. You're like, I have to have another bite, you know? Mm -hmm. If you got a really cool picture and you got 500 likes, that's nice, but I would much rather you become a repeat customer, you know, and me connect with you that way. Mm -hmm. You know, that means much more than a few likes. Mm -hmm. 
And do you think that even though like it's so important for a dessert to taste delicious, that there is kind of like different from maybe savory cooking, there is a little bit of like artistry. Oh, for sure. You know, inside that. Yeah, making you can things be, look beautiful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can be really creative. Mm-hmm. But also I let a lot of things that Mother Nature creates on her own mm-hmm. do a lot of the talking. So you can have a beautiful peach, you know, and make some granita, you know, mm-hmm. you brulee the top of the peach and serve it with fresh whipped cream. And that dessert within itself is super simple. The peach itself, you would look at it and you were like, wow, it's so beautiful, right? Because we love nature. We love things that are appealing to us because we've always been that way since the beginning of time. That's why we have so many like still life paintings, right? We don't have to gussy up everything all the time. We don't have to hide behind fireworks and like, you know, having a cannonball shooting out of a a chocolate cake. You can just have a simple slice of a chocolate cake and that to you might mean a memory, you know, that to me might be a memory. And through that commonality, we meet, you know, and we share an experience. Mm -hmm. We share a birthday party together, you know, so it's really. Yeah. (laughs) Just making me hungry now. (laughs) So what is your favorite dessert to make or the most challenging thing that you've come up with or the proudest dessert that you have created? I don't think it would be dessert. It has to be bread. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I really like making bread. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes, especially right now at Kith and Kin, we make so much volume. Like, so we have to really streamline what we're using, how we're using it, you know. So we're using like quick breads because we're running out of everything all the time, you know. Where if 500 people sit down in our restaurant and eat in one dinner service, understand that they're going to eat at least a thousand pieces of bread, you know. So bread is such a beautiful living thing, something that you have to really understand and get to know. And like sourdough starters almost get to know you as a baker and help you become like the best bread baker that you can be, right? A living starter is something that I respect so much and that I have to sustain and feed. And it's just like beautiful to know that this living, breathing organism is able to work with me and give me a product that I take for granted. Mm -hmm. And so is there like a particular sourdough that you've made that you particularly like making? So it's funny because I've used a starter for cake. Oh, really? Yeah. So It's like a sourdough cake? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. So maybe like two years ago, I was really relying heavily on mid-Atlantic only sourced ingredients. Mm-hmm. So I, I wasn't grabbing anything from California or Florida. Everything had to be from the mid-Atlantic, you know. And that was my personal challenge and um, maybe my personal hell too. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, I took something that I fed for a year, right, that I got to know that it got to know me because it would feed off of my bacteria mm-hmm. in my hands. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, because yeah. um, if somebody else would feed the starter, the starter would be like, who are you? Stranger danger. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> I'm not going to grow. <laughs> right. So you turn something like that into cake, you know, and you use um, fresh mid-Atlantic berries and you just leave it as is. 
you get your sourdough cake, a little bit of powdered sugar, and mid-Atlantic berries, and it just, it sang. It was like an orchestra, you know? Yeah, I can imagine that having a sourdough flavor inside mm-hmm. a dessert would be like a really yeah. like complex it's trippy. but interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where do you land on the whole sweet and savory combination? <laughs> oh, it's my my lifeline. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Finding that balance. Yeah. yeah. And actually when you were talking about the volume that you have to cook at Kith mm-hmm. and Kin, I was wondering how you balance that with wanting to be sustainable and how do you create the things that you want to make, but also thinking how can we make this financially sustainable, but also like environmentally sustainable. Yeah. Where do those thoughts come in? A lot of it is training, right? I work with a core group of seven, you know, the kitchen is much bigger, 25 folks that are doing organized tasks to be a part of like this, uh, like machine, right? Mm -hmm. But I have to train everybody to save things that they might be throwing out normally in another kitchen, Mm -hmm. you know. So I might look at cucumber peels and say, oh, you know, we're going through our one of our best sellers is the cucumber avocado salad, right? So you might use a lot of maybe 50 pounds of cucumber in three days. That's a lot of peels, right? So why not turn that into a sorbet, Mm -hmm. you know? Why not incorporate it into a pat de fruit or meringues? You know, it's water, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that can be dehydrated. So you could turn it into a powder and sprinkle it on somewhere for an amenity that goes upstairs to the hotel guest, you mm-hmm. know. So through that, you find sustainable practices, right? But it's retraining cooks that were shown that that's waste and it's no good. Mm-hmm. But showing them that it actually can be processed into something that yeah, it can make us a little bit of profits, but also can help us not waste. Mm-hmm. So also just put it in your water and drink it. Keep yeah. hydrated, you know, <laughs> stay healthy. Exactly. So Yeah, so you you mentioned like you need to train people to really think in this new way. Yeah. Did you feel that through your own training at the Cordon Bleu that that was something that you learned there? Or how did the professional culinary training change you as a chef? And is it something that you found was like very important and beneficial or is perhaps not even necessary anymore to really be a chef and follow your passion in cooking? I was really young when I went to school. Mm -hmm. I had just graduated high school and I wasn't even 18 yet. And I was like, there's no way that I can just go into a kitchen and get a job, right? So I understood the benefits of going to school as such that it would give me credibility. So for me, Le Cordon Bleu helped me become somebody that could be reliable, right? Because I was taught the fundamentals. But very quickly, once I forayed into like culinary, I had to throw away everything I learned. Every single kitchen I went to, I threw away everything really? I learned. Because every individual chef has their own methods and There's always a method to the madness. So as soon as I realized that, I was able to become a clog in the machine and Mm -hmm. do my part and do it well and move up the ranks, you know. Mm -hmm. It was only until I decided I was savory at first and I decided, you know, I really would love to try my hand at pastry. I get stuck in pastry land all the time anyways because I have really small, cold (laughs) hands. So I kind of... Just let everything go that I learned for savory for a moment. And I asked uh, Chef Jacques Torres, I was like, I know you don't know me, but can you please hire me? (laughs) Like, 
I'll work for whatever, I'll work for free. And he was like, well, that's illegal. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, thank God, you know, but I did it. And I, I learned so much because I was willing to learn. I saw myself as a sponge, right? Like I, I didn't know everything. I still don't know everything. Like if somebody wants to come and teach me a different method, I'll accept it. I'll be like, thank you, because knowledge is power, right? Knowledge is wealth. And the more you learn, the more you can be successful, the more you can be able to express yourself and get to where you want to be, right? Mm -hmm. If just a few of us would just simmer down and, no pun intended, mm -hmm. and just kind of listen to each other, you know, how many problems we would be able to solve. Mm -hmm. It would be a beautiful world, you know. Yeah, and do you think that actually moving around between different chefs and different cuisines has really helped you then because you are just like constantly gathering this new knowledge and new styles? Yeah, it's really given me that insight that we're all connected as human beings via food and mm -hmm. via life experiences. Like we can have somebody who's Dutch and Nigerian have the same fried dough uh, called mm -hmm. puff puff and eat that and think that that's like just a part of their culture and not know that thousands of miles away somebody is enjoying the same exact flavor profile in their own hometown, mm -hmm. you know. Food is like the great equalizer, you mm -hmm. know. Brings us together, it gives us a sense of peace like we can sit down in a table and it doesn't matter what your views are, what you believe or what you don't believe and you can eat and know that food sustains us, gives us life. It makes us stop talking for just a second, mm -hmm. you know, and it gives us like a momentary uh, peace. Mm -hmm. Wow. And do you ever feel that because a lot of your food has been influenced by childhood memories and you really want to sort of express that to the people who are enjoying your food? that sometimes when you do make a creation and it's out on the public scene that you aren't always able to maintain like ownership over those like very personal memories or is that something that doesn't really matter to you because if food is like a an equalizer that anyone can kind of access and appreciate i my job is just to present right mm -hmm. your job as the consumer is to experience you know mm -hmm. and if you're a chef to recreate, right? To say that my personal experience is the end-all be-all and that another chef can't recreate something is selfish and silly and unfair because I can be creating all of these wonderful desserts in Washington, D.C., but in rural America, how are they going to try it? You know, so please ask me for a recipe. I'll send it to you. I'll mm -hmm. I'll give it to you. Put your own spin on it, you know, sub out flavors, you know. I'll teach you ratios. I'll teach you whatever you want. Just let other people experience the same thing that people in Washington, D.C. and New York have been able to experience. Mm -hmm. I, I think that that's a longer lasting legacy than being selfish mm -hmm. and saying that this is all for me and it's all by me mm -hmm. because it, it isn't, you know, the whole kitchen, a whole well-structured kitchen is equal parts of people contributing to something, giving ideas, and the chef as the conductor listening to the instruments that are playing, mm -hmm. you know, and making sure that you get the best dish to the guests. Mm -hmm. 
And is that a culture that you found at Kithkin? Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, all of Washington, D.C. is like this, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, it's almost like the Disneyland of, like, <laughs> food and, like, culinary. And cooks are more willing to speak out. A lot of when I was, like, 15, I started at 15, and then I went to culinary school at 17. A lot of it was me being fearful of even saying, I have an easier way to do this. I found an easier way, you know. So I give them the opportunity to get to the same results without my method, you know. Mm -hmm. My method might work for me, but I'm also very crazy and very, like, fast because I had to be in New York in the rat race and I have to be very aggressive and and when I start to cook it's like tunnel vision like don't stand next to me they know not to stand next to me because I'm like moving really fast and I might bump into you and then later on I'm like I'm sorry I love you you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I don't expect that same energy I respect everybody that's in the kitchen and their style and if they're a little more lax than I am as long as we're able to get the same result I'll step in and I'll help you and I'll push whatever needs to be pushed forward. And then, you know, I'm not going to sacrifice anybody's mental health or Mm -hmm. emotional stability to be fast or Mm -hmm. be, I don't know, quick or whatever. It's just not worth it. It's 2020. We can't treat people like that Mm -hmm. anymore, you know. Mm -hmm. And is that sort of the the older how kitchens used to be run more generally? For sure. You know, I think... When I was in the chocolate factory with Jacques Torres, he really taught me to slow down because chocolate is a process. You know, you just look at chocolate in its finished state. Most people see chocolate and they're like, oh, it's a bar of chocolate. They don't understand how many layers of processing it takes even just to temper chocolate properly. It's a waiting game. You know, you're, you're bringing it up to the temperature. You're bringing it down. You're bringing it back up. Then you're keeping it constantly in motion, you know. So he taught me to slow down. Everything was like, I got to go fast. I got to do this or else I'm I'm toast, you know. Again, no pun intended. (laughs) But you, you realize that there's so much waiting and so much trusting the product that you have to do. So I figured I'll do the same thing with people, right, because every person is different. It's like a different strain of cacao. You know, not all the same strains of cacao will act the same way. Some have more cocoa butter content. Some are more rich, you know. Some are even pink. Mm -hmm. And that's the same with people. So you you start to study the people that you work with, and you start to just understand that the basic human needs, right? And then you start to realize that once you start treating chocolate well and treating people well, it— starts to do the things that you need it to do. And people start to do the things that you need them to do. And it stops becoming a machine and Mm. it starts to become uh, a living organism. And that's what we should strive for in kitchen, becoming living, breathing organisms like Mm -hmm. yeast. Yeah, (laughs) I love that. So how do you sort of arrange your your workplace or your team so as to get this balance between like you want to have the time and you want to really care for people but you are trying to serve huge numbers of people in a short time and really like making sure that you're not keeping your customers waiting and in service some things are very time pressured Mm -hmm. and must be like cooked on the go or some things can be made in a vase like how do you really construct 
your ideal work environment given all of those like challenges? For me, my job as a chef is not to put all that onus on the cook, right? It's to really lead the charge and really be thinking ahead, right? So if I'm thinking about, like right now, I'm thinking about spring desserts, but I'm also thinking about summer desserts. And I'm thinking about, well, you know, if the summer's really hot, will a frozen dessert be able to be executed well with the windows open, right? Mm -hmm. Will they be able to have the proper tools? So I'm ordering enough tools. I'm making sure that there's no more than three or four touches on a plate and a touch is the ingredients. Like, so if there's a cake, there's a mousse, there's a garnish, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm giving them the tools to succeed, right? Putting my ego aside and, and not saying, well, I had this grandiose idea of having 10 touches on a plate. It's your job to execute. No, you know, mm-hmm. like, man, wake up, you know? Yeah, <laughs> like, sometimes yeah. I have to shake myself and be like, wake up. You're, you have to make sure that you can condense all these flavor profiles into one touch, mm-hmm. you know? So that the cook doesn't feel flustered, but mm-hmm. has a way to be successful, you know. So I'm planning, I'm talking to them, I'm seeing where their strengths are, I'm seeing where their weaknesses are. And if there's a weakness, I'm either training them to be stronger or I'm changing and modifying my plates to help them. Mm-hmm. And with that, they start to, if I want a quenelle, on, a quenelle is a shape of, uh, that you make ice cream or mousse or whipped cream with a spoon. If they can't execute a quenelle, we're training on how to get that. But also, I'll use an ice cream scoop, mm. <laughs> you yeah. know. It, it's still beautiful, yeah. you know. The guest knows no better. Mm. I know better, but the guest won't know mm-hmm. that it was supposed to be a quenelle, <laughs> you know. Um, Tastes good. <laughs> it's still ice cream and mousse yeah. and whipped cream. So I'm making sure that I'm studying everything and if we're busier i'm changing and modifying things so yes maybe that might be detrimental because we're in the age of everything is instant and we could put it up on instagram but also so what Hmm. so what maybe i might post it like this one day and then a few months later you'll see it in a different version i'll be like version 3.0 yeah you know always developing right (laughs) but I'm just also fascinated by this idea of like touches on a plate. Mm -hmm. So you have to streamline to create like maybe four touches, you said. But Mm -hmm. is there like a process in how you build up a plate? So the first touch is always going to be like the main ingredient. Yeah. So how do you sort of make the plate like the map of the plate? So I try to grab a recipe that I want to make. Right. Let's say a flan. Right. A flan is actually a one touch dessert, right? You make your flan, you put it on a plate, you serve it, (laughs) you know, one touch. But if you want it to be more aggressive, you know, like what else could you add to a flan? Do you want to add texture? Do you want to add salt, heat? Do you want to make it light and airy? Do you want to, it depends on what exactly you want the guests to experience. Mm -hmm. Um, So I might start a dessert with a flourless chocolate brownie and realized by the end of it, I actually want to make those flavors into a tiramisu. So mm-hmm. I want to make a flourless chocolate brownie into a tiramisu. So how do I do that? You know, 
So how do I do that and help my cooks execute it correctly, right? Like I wouldn't want them to cut anything on the fly. On the fly means fast. Or I wouldn't want them to have to feel the pressure of making whipped cream to order with the ISI or by hand where I've been in kitchens like that. Mm, I don't ever (laughs) I don't ever want to see that kind of muscle on (laughs) being developed on the line. But it really depends, right? I let the ingredients talk and I might think that the flan is the star, but if I add spicy candied pepitas, that might be the star. Mm. You know? And that might be the thing that takes the dish to the next level. And that's gonna be the thing that people talk about. So I let the stars develop on themselves, you know, or by themselves, and I just arrange them and see what happens. You Mm -hmm. know, I let the food do most of the talking. Mm -hmm. That's what I want people to remember. Like, if they never were able to meet me or see who I was, I want them to remember the food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And just one last thing before we finish. You had mentioned that you kind of asked to transition to pastry, but then also, you know, you had the perfect small cold hands for pastry work. Do you feel that there's like a little perhaps like gender imbalance between savory and then pastry, like because of maybe having smaller hands and how more in general have you found like representation in the culinary world in your experience? So when I started cooking, there was a disconnect between the pastry world and savory. There were little to no pastry chefs because everybody was trying to save money. It was after the depression of 2008. Mm -hmm. So restaurants were really hurting. So they were trying to find ways to make a full menu without having to get that extra salary into the kitchen. So, yeah, you know, I got pushed into, you know, rolling wonton-wrapped bananas and uh, making a panna cotta. I actually sucked at rolling (laughs) bananas. I was like, I don't know how I I still had that job. But there was a lot more kind of like that expectation that I should know because I'm a girl. But also, at the same time, most of the famous pastry chefs were all men. So they weren't giving pastry chef jobs to women, just cook jobs, right? And... It's just now recently where people are feeling emboldened to apply to that job or like who would have thought that a young Dominican girl from the Bronx would be an executive chef of anything, right? You know, mm-hmm. so it's one of those things where I I always just thought I was supposed to be a part of that quiet mentality, just work until, you know, somebody notices and then realize that. We have to start making ways. Like, I try to make sure that the women at my job feel like they can do whatever they mm-hmm. want to do. If they want to be on fry and they want to be the grill cook, you can do that, you know? Mm-hmm. If you want to be the best pasta chef that you have ever been, like, you can ever be, do that. You know what I mean? Like, there's no there's no gender roles mm-hmm. to the kitchen. Mm-hmm. That stuff is made up. Mm-hmm. It's made up and it's toxic. And if you want to be a a man, like a manly man, and you want to do dainty desserts, please do that. I I think that we, for a long time, let a lot of people tell us what is appropriate in all aspects of life. 
of what we should do or what we shouldn't wear, what we should look like, or a girl should be girly or a man should be manly. And that just, that stuff is made up, you know? It's assigned roles that don't even fit the narrative Mm -hmm. anymore. So I guess, like, if anybody's out there, like, listening, if you feel like you shouldn't or you can't, I'm telling you, you can, because look at me, you know, I just applied to a job and I showed um, Chef Tony my Instagram. I was like, please just look at what I can do. And he was like, you can start tomorrow. So take a risk, put yourself out there. Don't listen to whatever the world is trying to tell you, but just move forward, you know, walk in your own beat. Also, I want to do a big shout out to all of the workers and staff at Kith and Kin. So DeAndre, Nikki, Floor, Freddie, Trey, and Teddy. Thank you for everything that you guys do. Uh, everybody else, Jaren included, or else I'll never hear the end of it. So thank you. Love you guys. Bye. From the Yale Sustainable Food Program, this has been Chewing the Fat. You can follow Paula on Instagram and Twitter at Small Orchids. Kith and Kin is located at the Intercontinental in Washington, D.C. This episode was produced by Alexa Stanger, Amy Zhang, Thomas Hagen, and myself, Erwin Lee. Mixing by Ryan McAvoy of the Yale Broadcast Studio. Music by Eddie Joe Antonio and Luis De Felice. Artwork by Logan Howard. Program support by Jacqueline Mono, Jeremy Oldfield, Noah Macy, and Mark Bomford. Special thanks to the following organizations for also supporting Paulo's visit. Ezra Stiles College, La Casa Cultural, and the Yale Center for the Study of Race, Indigeneity, and Transnational Migration. Our next guest for Cooking Across the Black Diaspora is Kiki Luya, owner of The Farmer's Hand in Folk, Detroit. See you in two weeks.